Hello, it's Thursday, January the 27th. This is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Now it's in England, it's Take Your Mask Off Day, but not if you're a customer or a worker in Sainsbury's, John Lewis and Waitrose. Who else might be requiring you to wear a mask? The Liberal Democrats are on the warpath after the Prime Minister, did he or didn't he, mislead us or even fib over whether he intervened to help those animals be airlifted out of Kabul for Penn Farthing's charity. But first, this former Cabinet Minister David Davis on why the government should abandon, pretty damn quickly, the proposed 1.25% rise in national insurance. He also thinks they can afford to lift VAT on fuel. Stay tuned and he'll explain how. Ministers are facing a growing revolt over the plan to increase national insurance by 1.25% in April. The money, of course, is going to be used, the £12 billion it will generate, to tackle NHS waiting lists. But there's an increased growing consensus, even among ministers, that it's the wrong time the Tory government should not be raising this tax. Leading the rebellion is David Davis. He's the Conservative MP for Halton, Price and Howden and a former Cabinet Minister. David, you make the point, and have made the point, that there's been a fall in borrowing of around £13 billion, which would easily cover the £12 billion that will be generated by raising national insurance for employees and employers. That's exactly right. I mean, the government made an overly, uh, the Treasury made an overly pessimistic forecast, which then generated demand for the 12 billion in the first place. Uh, that 13 billion, uh, better numbers, that, that, that amounts to a lot more taxes collected than they expected, the economy doing better than they expected, and so they're borrowing a lot less than they expected. That's just for the first nine months. I mean, by the year end, it'll be 17, 18, 19 billion. So we're going to have plenty of money to, uh, uh, frankly, cancel the national insurance increase. We'd also have enough money, if we want to, uh, to zero rate VAT on fuel and freeze council taxes. And frankly, I would do all of those things because, you know, our ordinary working families, as it were, uh, are struggling at the moment. We'll be struggling even more in April and we ought to help them. And I'm just looking at the figures. It will cost a worker on a £30,000 salary, uh, the 1.25% increase, around £255 a year. Someone earning 50000 will lose £505 from their take-home pay. And, David, this comes at a time when uh, energy bills are soaring. Uh, the, gov- the, the Chancellor has also announced he's freezing personal allowances on our income tax, which means there's going to be a real chunk taken out of people's uh, take-home pay. Oh, yeah. I mean, for example, with a cap coming off the fuel cost, which was put on a few years ago, an average family will see another £700 going out the door. You know, um, people will be struggling, you know, uh, and you know, we're trying to get the economy back this start of COVID. We really I mean, I'm not normally a go for growth uh, enthusiast, but at the moment it's the only strategy that will work. So uh, everything, everything points in the same direction, looking after ordinary people. Uh, points in that direction, keeping the economy growing points in that direction, balancing the books points in that direction, because one of the things will happen if we keep piling these taxes on is growth will slow down and the ta- other taxes, VAT and other will reduce, well, the, the, you know, the, 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 the tax take will reduce. So everything points in the direction of cancelling what was already a, an unwise tax increase uh, and doing everything possible to help out the ordinary people. 
And there's also the point, isn't there, that the employer share of the increase in national insurance could lead to prices going up in stores because employers will want to get that money back somehow. Uh, and the, probably the way they'll do it is to raise prices at a time when inflation is already at a 30-year high. Yeah, well, you've, got, you've actually got a double whammy out of this because they um, either have to increase prices, as you say, and increase inflation, or cut wages or not increase wages. People won't get their pay increases. The small businesses organizations were saying that yesterday. So you could end up with, I mean, you are just about old enough to remember stagflation. I can't yes. remember it. <laughs> I, I can remember it sadly. Yes, and and you know what? For for people who don't remember it, stagflation is when the economy isn't growing, but inflation is, and you get into a spiral where it all gets worse, where the economy gets worse, it gets less competitive, and the inflation gets worse. And once you're on that spiral, it's incredibly difficult to get off it. And remember, in April. Uh, on the on current forecast, we're going to have the highest inflation for 30 years. So it's a very dangerous circumstance. You know, and we need an economic strategy which avoids that. And that involves not putting taxes up, just the opposite, putting taxes down. And there's a political element to this too, of course. The Prime Minister has repeatedly, when he's been asked, has refused to say whether the NI increase will be cancelled or, or delayed. Uh, the Chancellor at the weekend in some of the Sunday papers, there were a series of stories trying to suggest it's not his national insurance rise at all, it's the Prime Minister's. But it doesn't work like that, does it? He's the Chancellor of the Exchequer, he introduced it, it's his tax rise. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever heard of the Chancellor before trying to say he's not responsible for his own budget. I mean, I, I don't know how, how reliable those stories are, Andrew, but the, the simple truth is it's the Treasury doing this, you know, um, and so the Treasury have got to control it. You know, and, and remember, one of the one of the important reasons we got elected, I mean, uh, the last election, 2019, if you want to talk the politics of it, is that we're not Jeremy Corbyn. You know, Every, uh, a number of times on, on council estates in the north of England, I had people say to me, Jeremy Corbyn will put our taxes up. Well, if we do it, that will go very hard on our economic reputation. And to pick one other story from the past, you know, we had a thing called an ERM crisis we did. Uh, a long time ago, and we destroyed our own economic reputation for a decade. Uh, we just couldn't recover from it. So on the politics of this, I mean, which frankly is secondary, to be honest, but on the politics of this, we could end up giving ourselves another um, scarred economic reputation if people suddenly find that the taxes are going up and they really can't make ends meet. And just finally, David, cynics might say the Prime Minister may may give this uh, to Tory backbenchers in return for their support in, a, in the event of any leadership vote of confidence because we know that, that he's still in deep political trouble. Sue Gray's report, the Senior Civil Servants report, may come out. I suspect it's going to be early next week now. Um, so okay. if, he, if he cancels a deeply, deeply unpopular tax, that might shore up his own position with his own backbenchers. Well, it may help a bit. I, I don't know. Um, but the truth is, this is important in its own right. It's mm. freestanding. Now, I don't, I don't really care what his motivation is, as yeah. <laughs> so long as he does the right thing. You know, um, you know. Uh, frankly, I, 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 it's, it's, it's immaterial to me why he does it, because it just needs to be done. I mean, we do need across the board, Andrew. We need a complete economic rethink when you yeah. think about how we finance the covid thing i've always you heard me argue before yeah for sort of war loan arrangement you know 50-year repayment arrangement so we're not trying to deal with it all the time you know we need to we need to think what sort of 
economic strategy we want. Uh, Rishi Sunak keeps saying he's a low-tax chancellor. At the moment, we're competing with Attlee. So, you know, we need we need to get ourselves straight, uh, be clear with the people where we're going and how we're going to get there. Uh, and along the way, the primary and single test is not politics. The primary single test is the welfare of the ordinary family. That's who we're that's who we're here to look after. And if we if we do this, this will help them. Spot on. David Davis, he's the Conservative MP for Halston Price and Howden and former Cabinet Minister who's leading this revolt on the Tory benches. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and much more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So has the Prime Minister been lying again? New leaked emails suggest he did intervene to help the animal charity boss Pen Farthing and his animals escape from the madness of Kabul shortly before the Taliban takeover. The Prime Minister is previously dismissed as nonsense, claims he intervened in the evacuation of the Nozad charity. But an email from an official in the Foreign Office Minister Zach Golsis' office suggests he was personally involved uh, what should we make of it of course this was the um the sanctuary run by the former army officer pen farthing Layla moran is the liberal democrat mp for oxford west and abingdon uh later what are, what is concerning people like you is it the fact that um a prime minister may have perhaps prioritized animals over humans or the fact that there is some conflict now yet again in what he may have told told us about his involvement well, it's a little bit of both. Um, so first of all, in terms of the prioritizing animals over humans, I think everyone wanted both to happen if it was at all possible. What we found out later, and there were private defense briefings that Ben Wallace, uh, who, to be perfectly honest, was excellent through this whole process, then um, told us MPs was that a choice had to be made. And if this was prioritized, then people would be left behind. Um, we didn't know that at the time, but presumably he did and the prime minister did. And so what it seems to look like is that he did this because it was the popular thing to do, because he was coming under huge political pressure from everywhere to do it. But then that's one thing. So you make a choice to governors to choose. But then he suggests now that he didn't make that choice. When he was asked whether he actually did that, he said it was nonsense. And this email from the office of Zach Goldsmith um, on the 25th of August says very clearly that the PM has just authorized. And it says those words quite specifically. So what we are very confused about is how on the one hand it can be nonsense and on the other hand this email exists. And that's what we're trying to get to the bottom of. Unfortunately, we have seen through this whole Pottygate scandal that the Prime Minister does seem to be prone to saying one thing and then getting rather confused about what he may or may not have said at a later date. Yeah. It does look like this is a pattern of behaviour, and I think that's what really I'm struggling with. And I just wish he would tell the truth bluntly. Just tell the truth and then defend what you've done. Yeah, now d the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace has been absolutely clear, hasn't he, in the past few days. He says at no point was he directed by the Prime Minister to prioritise evacuating the animals. Downing Street are insisting he did not intervene. And the leader of the House of Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg, said, um, look, 
people often take the Prime Minister's name in vain. They pray him or her in aid saying it's what the Prime Minister wants, when in fact that's not necessarily the case. So he's implying, he wasn't implying, he was saying that this Foreign Office official had no specific grounds to say Boris Johnson was insisting these animals were airlifted out. And I, I do think that's what we perhaps need to get to the bottom of. The thing is, it's just very believable that Boris Johnson did say, oh, well, he's, you know, I like pen farthing, he's doing good work and you know, save the animals and, you know, sort it out. And you can imagine that he said something like that, right? And we need to understand, was that a direct order or not? Where did this come from? What I'm also finding interesting is the intervention, um, I think it was Sky News that broke yesterday, that yes. um, Trudy Harrison is TPS, his yeah. private... His, uh, so this is the MP who's kind of allocated to the Prime Minister to kind of be the liaison between the Prime Minister and other MPs. She had been saying that also this had been authorised and that he was taking uh, some sort of personal interest in it. So th there's now a couple of pieces of evidence that suggest that he was very interested in this. To what extent there was a, you know, you must do this, or if it was just the suggestion he should, and then people, I don't know. But... What I do know is that it's very believable that he did interfere. At the time, it's certainly something that was huge in terms of our inboxes and whatever. Mm. There's huge sympathy for what Penn Farthing has said. And at no point, I don't think, is anyone saying that he's done anything wrong. Absolutely not. Um, but we need to get to the bottom of, again, did the Prime Minister lie? And this is just off the back of more and more and more pieces of evidence that point in the same direction. The only way you presumably be able to prove whether or not he is being straight with us is if there is a trail of emails, one of which involves the prime minister or where you can directly see he's, he's, he has been in communication with. Because I suppose he can argue again, it can be argued again, while Trudy Harrison, his parliamentary private secretary, talked to the, the airline company, the company that brought in the plane to get the animals out. It was a, it was a private hire. Um, she referred to it's what the boss wants, the boss wants. But there is, again, no specific evidence to say that the Prime Minister instructed to do that. And unless you can get that, Leila Moran, are you going to be able to move forward with this? Well, I think there's one other bit that I think we need to consider. Yeah. Which is that all of us have offices, right? So when you get to, certainly, you know, when the Prime Minister is signing things off, it's yeah. doing it for him. But as the boss, and this applies to my office as well, as the boss, even if it is my staffer who has said something in my name, it is my job to make very clear to people in my office what it is that I want and don't want. That is good leadership and that is good management. What we do by saying, oh, it was an official saying this or official saying that, is either he didn't say it and they were using his name in vain, as Mark seems to think, or he's a very bad manager, which isn't a good trait in someone who's leading the country. Your office should be able to give out clear instructions about what it is that you want. And if that's not happening, that is a serious failing at the heart of Downing Street, which again leads back to him. I don't think this looks good for him either way. Very interesting. That's Leila Moran. She's the Lib Dem MP for Oxford West and Abingdon, talking about the saga over Penn Farthing's animals, which were airlifted out of Kabul. Thanks for joining us. The legal requirement to wear masks in shops and on public transport in England ends today. However, Sainsbury's, John Lewis, Waitrose... Also, Transport for London will continue to ask staff and customers 
to keep wearing them. Sainsbury's has cited safety for their staff and customers as the reason for their retention of this rule. Joining me now is Dr Olivia Bicol, who's Executive Director for the Work Rights Centre. Dr Bicol, um, I'm completely relaxed when I get on a tube about wearing a mask, and I would have carried on wearing a mask even if it was not the policy of Transport for London, and I pretty much thought I'd probably do the same when I go into a supermarket. Um, what's your view? Should we, should, should we resist or should we go along with it? At the moment, I, I would go along with it. We have to remember that COVID still presents a real public health risk and that wearing a face covering is a proven way to mitigate its transmission. Um, And we also have to remember that even though the government has said today that face coverings are no longer required by law, it still actively encourages us, the public, to wear them in crowded and enclosed spaces. So in a way, to me, the fact that some retailers are still asking people to wear face masks isn't exactly extreme. It's really just uh, following government recommendations. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, Morrison's, another major supermarket chain, they're not requiring their staff to or their customers, but Sainsbury's and Waitrose are. Um, it's also, I guess, it's not just about us as customers. It's also about protecting their staff, Dr. Vicol. That's right. And, and in a way, that's the beauty of it. Um, it might seem like this is a restriction on, on, on liberty, but actually the whole edifice of health and safety in the UK is built on the premise that each business will assess its own risks and take the measures it deems appropriate. Some retailers have chosen to continue uh, imposing face masks, others have, have not. And that's just the context we, we operate in. Um, the health and safety executives continues to require businesses to control the risks of COVID and to update their, their risk assessments. And I guess for as long as COVID remains that concern, um, some of them are still going with their face masks. Yeah. And is there any way somebody could challenge a supermarket or, or, or for instance, John Lewis, Waitrose and say, actually, I don't want to wear one. I'm double jabbed. I'm triple jabbed. I've had my COVID test. I'm not wearing one. Are they within their rights to do that? Or is the company within their rights to say, well, then you're not coming in? I think this remains to be seen. I can't speak to consumers, right? But sure. um, I, can, I, can, I can say something about workers. Yes. Um, it, it is complicated and the devil really is in the details. Um, so businesses have to make sure that they offer flexibility to workers who are unable to wear face coverings due to medical reasons, for instance, such as asthma. That's pretty unequivocal. Um, they also have to make sure that they don't discriminate against people with protected characteristics like age or disability or race. And I think most importantly, they have to make sure that wearing a face covering doesn't become a cause for bullying in the workplace um, or a reason used to justify um, unfair dismissals. So we still have to be careful about these things. And if firms come to you for advice on this, Dr. Vika, what do you say to them? It, it's, it, I mean, who do they consult? Do they consult the workers? Is it a management decision? Should it be a bit of everything? Um, firms would normally come to us, but workers would. Right. Um, now, on, on the firm side, the health and sa- safety executive encourages firms to, to, to consult the, um, their employees because fundamentally it's in everyone's interest that um, you know, they understand why these measures are, are implemented and not other measures. Um, and I think you know, consent and, and buy-in are, are important, but at the same time, the pressure fundamentally is on the employer to map the risks and mitigate them. 
And if workers came to you, for instance, from Morrison's and they were to say, look, um, we want we think we should be protected at work. We want everybody to be wearing masks. They are wearing them at Sainsbury's. They are wearing them at Waitrose. They're our rivals. What can we do about it? Do they is there anything they can do about it, Dr. Bicole? It is an extremely complex area, and there is something they can do about it, but it's 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 slow, and it's it's something that's developing as we speak. Um, our our first advice would be to speak to their management and understand why they've taken these decisions and explain their concerns, and always you know do these things with calm and professionalism and, and trying to be constructive, um, because you know approaching a, an adversarial attitude, especially at this stage when things are still developing, that wouldn't help anyone. So yeah, speak, speak to management first and, and try to find a common ground. And if that doesn't work, then you might want to look at um, a union rep, if you have one, or getting, getting specialist advice. Right. What happens at the uh, uh, Work Rights Centre? You, are you all still wearing masks at your place or is it up to individuals, Dr. Bicol? <laughs> we do have a risk assessment. Um, we, as, as all employers, yes, as all employers uh, hiring more than five people, we have to have a written risk assessment. I, I can't tell you how many times we've updated it over the past couple of years. Right. Um, at, at the moment, we require staff to wear face masks and clients to wear face masks when uh, clients are in the building. Otherwise, we work in bubbles, we ventilate, we have other measures, and we use Perspex screens as well. But we're a very small team, so the, the measures we've taken are proportional to the risks we've identified. Very, very interesting. How interesting is that? That's uh, Dr. Olivia Vico, who's Executive Director for the Work Right Centre. So it's time for our regular city update with Ruth Sunderland, who is, of course, group business editor at the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday. So, Ruth, two boosts for post-Brexit Britain, electric Bentleys to be made in the UK and Citibank putting an awful lot of money into its Canary Wharf Tower. That's absolutely right. This is a real vote of confidence in Britain and particularly welcome as I think two of the most vocal lobby groups against Brexit saying it was going to bring about rack and ruin were the car manufacturers and the financial services industry, which for warning of all kinds of Armageddon and terrible things that were that were going to happen. And this just shows that it was wrong. Now, at this point, perhaps I'd better say um, it's no secret that I supported Remain in the referendum. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm not, um, I'm not biased in this. Um, by the way, I should say, I don't think I'm a Ramona. I've always been a respecter of democracy and once yeah. the vote came through, I want to see Britain's economy prosper and I've got no time for the moaning minis who, you know, want to see things fail just to, just to prove a point for themselves. This is just brilliant news. Um, you know, we've got £2.5 billion invested by Bentley in crew safeguarding 4,000 jobs and their flagship electric vehicles are going to be built here in the UK. This comes, you know, they're not the only one. This comes after Nissan in Sunderland has made big commitments to its plant there in Sunderland for electric cars. And also in the northeast, we've got British Volt going to open a huge factory to make the batteries to Mm. run them all on. It's all really good. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Canary Wharf is going to see the new revamped Citigroup Tower. Again, we were told that there was going to be a whole exodus of banking jobs out of London. This is particularly fantastic, in my opinion, because not only is it faith in post-Brexit Britain, it's also faith in a return to the office. And I think 
you know, everybody was saying, well, offices are going to be redundant. We're all going to be working from home. Citigroup obviously don't think so. They wouldn't be putting all of this money, £100 million, into revamping a major office group if they thought working from home was here forever after. Um, So I think that is a big vote of confidence in the return to Britain. Interestingly, Andrew, these investments, they come just a day after the IMF, International Monetary Fund, said that Britain's going to have the fastest growing economy of all of the G7 this year. So we all need to get our optimistic hats on a bit more, I think, and forget about parties and think about getting the economy firing up again. Quite right, too. Let's not ever talk about birthday cake again. It couldn't be a moment too soon, could it? Never. Absolutely right. That's Ruth Sunderland. She is Group Business Editor at the Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday, and there'll be more on those extraordinary developments. Bentley's to be making those electric cars in the UK and the big, big development in Canary Wharf Tower. So new research suggests that divorce can be far more traumatic for men than it is for women. Study found that divorced men are prone to deeper depression and often are more likely to drink excessively to cope with the breakup. Simon Mills has written about his own experience of divorce for the male and he joins me now. Simon, it's a very powerful piece in the paper today. Um, Your marriage was 20 years. You struggled socially. You became a recluse. You lost weight and you drank too much. Yeah, I mean, I lost weight. I, I wouldn't say I drank excessively. I drank regularly, which was uh, um, out of boredom and out of, uh, sol- about, out of solitude uh, uh, of reasons, really. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it, it's known to affect men more. Um, you you, you lose you lose a lot in terms of your health and happiness and your sense of um, belonging. You know, when you get divorced, and you're sort of reduced in every way. I think really. And I guess often, Simon, um, you, you, were the, you're, you're, you were the father of um, teenage daughters. M- most of the time, the children stay with mum, which was why your life changed. You moved out of the marital home. You yeah. stayed on sofas, slept in cars, stayed in an unheated yeah. flat and ended up sharing a flat with another single bloke. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, women um, generally stay in the family home, yeah. especially when there are children involved which, you know, obviously means that they are less destabilised, I think. Um, and that's just speaking factually, I think. You know, if you if you stay in the same home with, the, with your children, you are, you know, obviously it's a different setup, but you are less um, uh, uh, destabilised than, than somebody who actually moves out. And so, you know, I think that, um, you know, there are lots of, even in a fairly civilised divorce like mine, is that you come to the agreement where you... Um, uh, you know, non-binding, non-divorce lawyer generated uh, agreement where you agree to see the kids as much as, as you know you like, and it's fifty-fifty. It doesn't work out like that uh, for men. You know, um, children are creatures of habit, and they want to, you know, obviously be in the same place to go to, in the same bed to wake up and go to school every day, yeah. and you know, they spend yeah. gravitate towards their mother. So you know, it ends up honestly um, rather heartbreaking for me, and I think for a lot of other men, as around I'd say ninety. 1995 to 5% split, which is pretty hard going, to be honest with you, when you've been a big part of your children's life for so long. Yeah, and what is it? Can, can I pry now and ask, how is it now with your daughters? Oh, it's fine because they're grown, they're grown up now. I mean, yeah. the other factor in there was that, you know, I wasn't probably um, the best person to be around at the time either. I was, you know, I was, uh, I, I was, I was miserable, you know. And yeah. I wasn't a fun dad to have around. And they probably didn't want to 
didn't want to spend much time with me. I mean, you know, we were never we, we were never apart for months at a time, but, you know, um, we would just see each other sort of, you know, infrequently for short periods of time. So that was kind of painful. But, yeah, I mean, I don't think I was a particularly great person to be around at that time. And, and I'm just wondering what you make, because this research that um, uh, has come out from the University of Copenhagen, yeah. which suggests that contrary to popular perception, men are more often more emotionally attached in their marriage than women, and commonly yeah. on the receiving end when it comes to instigating the first moves towards a breakup. Do you agree with yeah. that broadly? I do. Yeah, I do. I think that men really um, tend to get, to, especially in middle age, men tend to get sort of, um, slightly complacent about their social lives and rely on their sort of familial setup and their kind of, you know, their, their marital relationships to, you know, have a, have a place in society and a place to and be, be invited and be, you know, a, a part of a group, a friends group. And that often sort of completely evaporates when you, when, they, when a man gets divorced because, you know, he's just sort of destabilised and he doesn't have... Um, the, the, you know, the, the, the setup to fall back on. Um, and, you know, um, in my experience, you know, the, the women always take control of the, of the, um, of the collective um, diary, you know, and uh, carry on their social lives as if nothing has happened, really. How long does it take to um, come out of this the black dog of depression, if that's the right yeah. expression, Simon? Um, I'd say about, about two years, I think. Uh, it's a strange emotion to have because you, you don't really miss the marriage, but you miss the rest of the stuff that goes with it. You know, mm. you miss the, um, you know, because you, you obviously you have a long time to ruminate on your, on your the reasons why you broke up. And, um, and so it's not, it's not the person that you miss, but it, I guess it's just sort of, you know, what, what it represented and what it gave you and the kind mm. of, you know, the, 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 the domestic setup and the, there's often uh, a joint social life too, isn't there? And the, yeah. 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 And so, and so that's a that was a pretty painful two years. Uh, what is your status now, Sam? Are you single? No, I'm not. No, I mean, I strange thing is, is that I didn't find it particularly difficult to meet people after I, right. I got I, I broke up. It was just the fact that I didn't really ever want to commit to any of them, and I was, you know, I was sort of uh, damaged by the whole mm. thing, really. So, you know, I was probably, um, I mean, I think I was a fairly nice date to go on but probably not a very you know one for the future <laughs> yeah 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 they, they might not have seen you as a, a, a long-time prospect a keeper i think yes exactly yeah, yeah. simon yeah. simon there, there'll be some men listening to this who perhaps are going just beginning to go through what you went through or that to start or that or they're already yeah. broken up what is your advice to people as they're coming out of a marriage particularly you were married for 20 years um what advice would you give well i think men or women actually but as we're talking about men um what would you say to your fellow men i i just advise them to try and keep it as civilized as possible get your priorities right and realize and this sounds like real californian you know nonsense but it is a chance for a second life if you if you play it properly and um, you know there is uh, there is an opportunity to be have a you know the next phase in your life, um, and it might seem impossible when you're going through the sort of slug of the initial impact of it, but it, that is possible. Um, the other thing that I'd say is that although it's good to talk to people about it, people have only got really got um, a certain amount of interest in it, and you be it's quite easy to become the kind of person that. Um, 
starts what they call a pity party in America, where you just discuss your divorce. And so this sounds rather rich from somebody who's just written a sort of two thousand word piece about it. But, yeah. um, you um you know you don't don't become one of those people that just bores everyone about it because um people will expect you to get over it um quickly. You know they'll think it's six months and you're going to be fine, but yeah. it's a long haul. It clearly is and, a long um, haul. And you know obviously you must 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 prioritise your um your children's well-being and your own as well and you know um try to get some sort of you know routine going so that you don't fall into um the bad habits of sort of you know drinking too much and not exercising and eating badly and doing recreational drugs which i think is all all connected with uh, that report you mentioned earlier yeah absolutely absolutely And, and look at you now simon you're on the straight and narrow happy enjoying life (laughs) <laughs> not too bad yeah yeah well, I, well i'm glad to hear bad. that simon it was a terrific piece and um uh, and i'm sure people listening will be greatly encouraged that there is light at it's a terrible cliche yeah. but there is always light at the end of that long tunnel isn't there yeah yeah well that's simon mills um do read about him in the paper today he's written about his experience of divorce for the male and why it can often be tougher for men That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pearce. This is The Andrew Pearce Show. I'm back with you tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. (laughs) 